Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your mercies are truly new every day and that your strength is perfected in weakness. Lord, thank you that you are a loving God, that you have set us free from the chains of death. And Lord, that there is truly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that our victory is in you. We thank you that we find our joy and our hope in you. And we commit this service to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, last week, as you guys know, there was a pathetic display of uh, technological savvy. And I've got a surprise for you today. Last week was really an aberration. I'm really a, a technological genius. I mean, <laughs> go ahead and laugh. That's Steve, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Dan Hardy. And I've got a surprise. You folks have been so patient that I, I really wanted to give you a gift. It's not very often have you got to see yourselves you know, on a video while you're sitting there watching. And uh, this, was, uh, this was very expensive. We're going to be filming you all today, and I just... I would ask you not to pick your nose, just uh, you're on film. But I, I do promise that we'll do a better job today. The videos, I'm one of four pastors here, and the other three all have Macs, and I've got a PC. <laughs> just uh, pray for me, pray, pray for Graham. Today is part three of a four-part series, and the series is titled Unity, Diversity, and Maturity in the Body of Christ. In part one, two weeks ago, we talked about the source and purpose of spiritual gifts. And if you remember, the, the source is God himself. It's the Holy Spirit. And that each of us are uniquely and divinely gifted for the purpose of edifying the body, for the common good. That's why we're gifted. If you miss that message, it might pull it all together for you. It's on the web, and it's called The Source and Purpose of Spiritual Gifts. Last week, we talked about unified and diversified in one body. We taught through verses 12 through 26 of chapter 12. And just a, a few key points that I want to hit on from last week. And one is, is that we're unified in one body. We're unified in one body. We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all members of the body of Christ, and it's, it's Christ who holds us together. We are baptized by one spirit. Remember we talked last week about there not being a second baptism? And I've got a, a dear brother that, that is a mentor uh, in my life, and, and he knows that I have a tendency of being dogmatic. Do you know what dogmatic is? It's like, this is the gospel according to Dan Hardy. And I know I have a tendency for that. And I really want to be more purposeful in saying things like, this is the way it's seen, this is what the scripture seems like it's telling me. Because as, as I've been studying the last three weeks, oftentimes what I do is I'll read through the word. I'll read it, I'll read it, I'll read it, I'll read it. I will outline it, and then I'll have questions. And there's certain parts of the scripture that, that quite frankly, I'm just not quite sure what the author's trying to say. Then I'll pull out six commentaries. And guess what? They're all different. And, and what I mean by that, and it's not, it's not, on, it's not on 90% of God's word, but there's certain verses that, are, that people just disagree on. 
So I don't want to ever come before you on, with scriptures, and there's a couple of them today where I'm just dogmatic. Okay? And last week we talked about the baptism by the Spirit. And there are some places for being straightforward and dogmatic. And this is one of them. That when we were saved, God infused new life into our heart. The old man had gone away, the new man became alive. And he gave us at that point everything we need for life and godliness. One baptism. We talked about that last week. We were baptized, all of us, by one spirit. And then we talked about being diversified in one body. Remember the, the illustration of the football team? That we can have unity by all wanting to be quarterback, being the same height, same weight, same speed. But having unity without diversity, it produces uniformity. Okay, and there's no benefit to us all having the same gifts. It, it actually leads to death or leads to failure. So that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's the beauty of the church is that he has gifted each of us uniquely. Every one of you, some of you may have the same gifts, but it's really a mixing pot in each of you where you're as unique as a handprint or a snowflake. We don't want to be a bunch of people that are gifted the same way. Just like I don't want to be an arm up here or a mouth or, God forbid, my brain. 18 through 20, gifted by one Lord. You are all uniquely gifted. And if we question our gifts, we're really questioning the Lord. He's made each of you uniquely. You know, I'm not sure where we're headed today. You're probably going to get a lot of my heart and what the Lord has, has and is doing uh, in my heart this last week. But I want to tell you that no matter who you are and how you perceive yourself, no matter what your background is like, no matter if you've got people in your life that affirm you or don't affirm you, I want to tell you that the, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are divinely gifted. He has is, he is infused His life into you and has given you unique gifts to serve the body of Christ. Diversity leads to disunity when the members compete with one another. But diversity leads to unity when the members care for one another. Members care for one another by functioning according to God's will and sovereign gifting and helping others to function the same way. We're going to look at chapter 12, verses 27 through 31, and we're going to start chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And let's read the scripture together. It says this in verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you still more excellent way. Chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And I have to give all my possessions to feed the poor. And I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
Let's pray again. Lord, thank you that we can just come to you, that you tell us to uh, pray without ceasing. And Lord, I thank you for your divine word, your life-changing word. And I pray, Father, that I would not add any offense to your word today. Lord, that you would teach each of us. And Lord, that we would draw near to you. And that we would leave this place today more in love with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's take a look at uh, verse 27. It says, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And Paul has beat this horse to death over all of chapter 12, saying that we are the body of Christ. And we are Christ's body to this lost and dying world. We are the hands, the feet, the love of Christ to each other and this world. The body is one cohesive unit with many members, but they all belong to the same body and cannot operate independent of one another. Ephesians 1, 22-23 says this, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says this, For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And I, want to, I want to move on to verse 28. Verse 28 says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then, or after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. I had a real hard time believing that Paul would have a priority list of gifts when he has really talked uh, such in depth about all of us really being equal of equal value. And yeah, there's more upfront gifts and there's more behind the scenes gifts. But I really don't believe that Paul is talking about that first in value is apostles, second in value is prophets, third in value is teachers. Um, I... Um, In the phrase, God has appointed, means divine appointment. In addition to the gifts he gives every Christian, which he has written about extensively in chapter 12, he has appointed apostles, prophets, and teachers. In addition to that, he's given gifts. So he's appointed certain men and women to office, and he has gifted people, he's given people gifts. You see the difference there? This is really, really important. Because an apostle and a prophet and a teacher, in that sense, is not a gift. Sure, there's a gift of teaching. There's a gift of prophecy. But he's talking about an office here. The three types of gifted persons mentioned here and in Ephesians 4.11. Well, actually, Ephesians 4.11 adds two more. It adds evangelists and pastors. And Ephesians 4.11 says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Some as pastors and teachers. So you now have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers as a gifted people given to the church. Now he has given these men and women to the church to direct and lead the church. Now the million dollar question is, are these offices given to the church for the length and duration of the church? Does the church always need apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? Or is there a time when, when the church didn't need them? And I would submit to you for, for your further study that apostles and prophets, those two offices disappeared at the completion of Scripture. That's what my study tells me, and I just ask you to study the same. 
it was for a defined period of time. It ended at the completion of Scripture. And that they had three purposes, the apostles and prophets. The first purpose was the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2.20, it says that they are the foundation of the church. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Okay, Christ was a cornerstone, but the church was built upon the prophets and the apostles. Now, that is not saying that Peter was the pope, as one religion points out. The other purpose is revelation. Ephesians 3, 5 says that they were to make known what was hidden in the past. It says this, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. It is... The apostles and the prophets that have penned the scriptures. So the second purpose of apostles and prophets was a revelation of scripture. Third purpose is confirmation. They performed many miracles, signs and wonders. And it was to, to confirm the word of God. We don't need those three things anymore. We've got the completed scripture. The foundation is established. We don't need anybody to reveal scripture to us. It's in the written word. It's complete. Their purpose was to establish the church with solid doctrine. There's no need for the office now, as I just mentioned. When they passed from the scene, when apostles and prophets passed from the scene, their ministry was taken over by pastors, evangelists, and teachers. And their job is to lead and direct the church. That's the job of pastors, evangelists, and teachers. And as I was doing some reading this week, I came across uh, just a, a neat example that really helped me out here. And it says this, that many famous artists, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, they had other artists that were helpers. The artists would paint the basic work. Michelangelo or, or uh, da Vinci would paint the basic work. And the other artists would fill in the, and touch in the gaps under the direction of the artist. Did you know that? I didn't know that. The Holy Spirit is the artist. He puts us on the canvas in just the right place. But he has some helpers, and these helpers are gifted men, men and women, quite frankly, in some roles. Their job is to perfect the saints, to make those colors as vivid, as bright, and as beautiful as they can so that the portrait of Christ is clear. That's God's calling. God chooses men and women to have the responsibility in different areas of leadership. For what purpose? Ephesians 4.12 says for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Let's take a look at verses 29 and 30. He distributes the gifts and offices according to his sovereign purpose. 29 and 30 says all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. It's a rhetorical question. The answer, obviously, is no. Of course he doesn't make all of us the same. All of us don't have the same gift. Now, I do believe that all of us can have the same giftedness. It's all mixed in one little bag. Think of it. Have you ever got a gift that you've got a box that, and you open it up, and it's got a... Guys, it's got a tie in there, and it's got some socks in there, and it's got, I don't know, maybe sunglasses in there or something. Well, we've been given a gift by somebody we love, but there's different aspects to that gift. And it's the same way with our giftedness, that each of us have unique gifting, and it's all blended together. There was a baseball umpire in the major leagues by the name of Bill Clem. One day he was umpiring an important game. There was a runner on third base. There was a ball hit deep to left field. 
The left fielder grabbed the ball. He made a strong throw to the plate. One bounce went right to the catcher. In a cloud of dust, the umpire delayed his decision. One bench said, he's safe, he's safe. The other bench said, he's out, he's out. Bill Clem turned around and looked at both benches. And he said, it ain't nothing till I call it. And believer, you ain't nothing till God calls it. But when he's called it, and that's at the point of salvation, you are something. And the something that you are is something he wanted you to be. And that something is desperately needed by the body of Christ. Amen? Is desperately needed by the body of Christ. Let's look at verse 31, the first part of 31. I call it 31A. And I, and I write a question here. Is this a contradiction? Paul just spent all of chapter 12 telling us to be content in our gifts. To not covet other people's gifts. That were uniquely wired. And then he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And you know what the, the, the Greek literally is for desire? Covet. He tells us to actually covet the greater gifts. Dino's going to open up the word in two weeks, starting in chapter 14. And it's really going to be a continuation. 12, 13, and 14 go together. It's all about spiritual gifts. And in 14, as we're going to see, it says it's okay, it's even good to desire spiritual gifts. But it's in regards to their use collectively and faithfully in his service. Not a personal yearning to have an admired gift that you don't currently possess for your benefit and your stature in the body. He doesn't want us to desire greater gifts for look at me and for an ego trip. But as a congregation, we here at Windsor Community Church, like the church in Corinth, should want the full expression of all the gifts to be exercised in the body for the common good. If there's missing body parts, it's okay to desire for those. In fact, you know what, believer? It's okay for you to even pray for the greater gifts. But you know the posture you want to pray? You want to pray with your hands open. That Lord, you know, if, if you'd be so kind, if you'd be so good to give me the gift of X. But if you haven't wired me that way, I'm okay with that. But would you bring somebody else into the body that has that gift of helps or administration or teaching? You see the difference? It's really a dangerous verse because he doesn't say desire. The Corinthians were desiring the show your gifts. They were desiring the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles. Because they're the show your gifts. It would do great for their ego. But the Lord says desire the greater gifts if and only if you can do it with contentment and that you can use those gifts for the common good, for the edification of the body. Does that make sense? Does that make sense a little bit? It's a, conf- it's a confusing verse. It's a confusing verse to me. Let's move on. Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now Paul is moving on. He's moving on for a period. He's saying desire them, but he's saying that I will show you a still more excellent way. And I show you a still more excellent way. And I'm just kind of feeling that he's a little bit worn out with the Corinthian church. That they're desiring these show your gifts. He says, I've told you how to desire them. Be content. Use gifts for the edification of the body. But I want to tell you, let's put that aside. And love is a more excellent way. Christ's love 
To correct the church's misguided views of spiritual gifts and its overall self-destructive way of behaving, Paul promised to show the Corinthians a more excellent way to live. He wanted them to know there is something far more important than supernatural gifts. Something that transcends the greater gifts. Something that, if absent, will render all gifts worthless. That something is love. The love we're going to learn about is primarily love for fellow believers, but it bleeds across into the entire world. But he's talking about primarily here the love for each other in the church. This love was displayed on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy. A love which proceeds from God. It is a love lavished upon others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It is a love that asks for nothing in return. The Christian who has experienced God's love to him or her, while he was yet a sinner, has been transformed by this experience. Now we should see men in a measure as God sees them. We should see them as objects of God's love, as those for whom Christ died. Accordingly, this attitude towards them is one of love, of self-giving. It's actually agape love. And agape love is a love that Christ shows to us. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that asks for nothing in return. As Christians, we should come to practice the love which seeks nothing for itself, but only the good for others. This love was defined by Jesus when he gave us a new commandment. And he said to love one another just as I have loved you. That's John thirteen thirty four. This love gives itself in total sacrifice for the love of others. Jesus exemplified this new pattern of love by selflessly sacrificing his life on the cross for others. In 1 John 3.16, John puts it this way. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Amen? That's the love that Christ is talking about here. The love for one another is the same love that Christ showed for us. So in verse 31, he says, love is a more excellent way. Now, Paul is going to unpack it a little bit in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. Without love, even heavenly language sounds annoying. If I speak with love, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels who do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Is this annoying to anybody at all? This is tough. Speaking in tongues and other languages with a gift of the Corinthians. He really wanted us to use our gifts out of love. Is this starting to bother you at all yet? Speaking in tongues or other languages was a gift the Corinthians prized so highly. They abused so greatly. And counterfeited so disastrously. The independent-minded Corinthians used their gifts for personal ego gratification, which caused division within the body. Without love, no matter how linguistically gifted one is able to speak his own language or other languages, or hypothetically even the language of angels, his speech is noise only. You know, I am. I'm going to give you a little bit of myself as we're going through this. It's really interesting. I was talking to one of my brothers, fellow pastors, about this, that, that the Lord had me uh, teaching through this scripture. Because, um, and this is, this is not false humility, but I don't know a more loveless person than me. I don't know a person that is more prideful than me. 
And uh, don't you just long to be characterized by love? Not by your gifts. Not by, you know, he's good at this or she's good at that. I just long to please the Lord by, by loving my bride, first and foremost. Isn't it interesting that sometimes it's hardest to show love to the people that we're closest to? I'm going to continue. Verse 13, 2a. Without love, knowing it all helps no one. Without love, knowing it all, being a know-it-all, helps no one. The first part of verse 2 reads like this. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm a spiritual zero. Some people love to display their intellect and theological superiority. They are proud of their learning and speaking ability. This becomes a problem in the Corinthian church as it is in the church today. This became a problem. Some people were arrogant because of their knowledge and puffed up with self-importance. As a result of their arrogance, misuse of knowledge, they harmed the church body. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. You know what knowledge by itself does? It says right here, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge without love inflates the ego and deceives the mind. It can lead to intellectual snobbery, an attitude of mockery and making fun of others, a spirit of contempt for those with lesser knowledge, and a demeaning way of dealing with people who disagree. Paul said if he knew it all, but did not have love, he was nothing. You know what? This happens in the church today. Not in this, not in this body. I'm sure it happens. With, it happens to me. It probably happens some with you all. But I'm talking about the universal church. I mean, how often do you see churches shaking their fists at other churches because they practice speaking in tongues, for example? Because of their way of doing church, they're an attraction-based model instead of a teaching-through-the-word-verse-by-verse model. We are so judgmental as believers. We are know-it-alls. Even, I'll tell you what, I'm convicted of this. And you know, maybe the other pastors here are convicted of this. Is that we're, we're thankful that the God of the universe has given us a vision for this, for this church and for this community. But we don't have a lock on anything. You know? I mean, the Lord is working in other churches in this community. In northern Colorado, in, in, in the United States, around the world. And Lord, please forgive us for thinking that we've got... A lock on anything. May we be loving. How about a lack of love that the church shows today to unbelievers? I mean, how about the disdain that the church has for homosexuals? Because God's word says that homosexuality is an abomination. Guess what? It is. How would Christ deal with them? Christ wouldn't deal with that population with the knowledge that it's an abomination. He would deal with them with the love of Christ. He would reach out to them. He would share the good news with them. He wouldn't tell them that this lifestyle that they're living is, is okay. But he wouldn't make it his only point. He would make it a point to say that there is a God of the universe that loves you, that laid down his life for you, and just beg them to turn their life over. And when they turn their life over to the living God, you know what's going to happen? They're going to turn from their sin. 
They may struggle with it for a lifetime, but they're going to turn from it. The same thing with abortion. Abortion is terrible. It's terrible. I kind of feel like I said this last week. If I did, forgive me. It's a terrible thing. But it's, the battle isn't to point our fingers in the chest of the people doing the abortions. The point is, is to share the love of Christ. If we share the love with Christ, and, he'll, and He will turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, guess what? They're going to stop performing abortions. So let's not take the knowledge and throw it at the world. Let's take the love of Christ and infect the world. Amen? George Sweeting, former president of Moody Bible Institute, makes this observation. I have been keenly disappointed to find people more concerned about hidden mysteries than about needy people. Too often Christians are concerned about hidden truth, but indifferent about loving difficult people. Just yesterday, boy, just this whole week the Lord has shown me that I'm all about knowledge. I'm all about vision. I'm all about strategy. I'm all about administration. I'm all about making things happen in a very unloving way. I had a major blowout this week with a dear brother. At the end of the day, it was about me being right. Knowledge. And the point isn't if, if I'm right or wrong, or you're right or wrong. And brothers and sisters, get this in your marriage. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about loving each other, thinking the best of each other. It's about forgiving one another. And just yesterday, there's a guy that visited this church. His name, Paul. And uh, pray for Paul. Paul is a guy that moved up here, came to this church. A dear sister brought him to this church. And I'd met him, and, and he never came back. About two months later... Friday, he calls me, and he says, I need your help. He left an urgent message. He says, I need your help. He's from Florida. He says, I need to get back to Florida. Can you help me out? And I said, yeah, I guess I can, help. I can help you out. And that's kind of what my heart was. I guess I can help you out, rather than absolutely I can help you out. I picked him up in Loveland, took him to the place where he was living. He lived with three girls, a girlfriend and two of the girls. They threw all his stuff out in the backyard. Um, they came in drunk at 2 in the morning and beat the crud out of him pulled his hair, kicked him. And he's just broken. So I take him over to his house to get his stuff and take him to the bus stop. As I'm standing there waiting for him to go, I'm, I'm outside the car. There's a U-Haul next to me. And there's a mom and a young child getting into it. And I just hear a little bit of a conversation. And apparently this mom and this child are fleeing from something. They're just taking off, packed up their U-Haul. And over the left, with a door open, is in a duplex, I hear this couple just in stereo, I hear this couple just screaming at each other, just using the F word at the top of their lungs. And it just dawned on me how hurting this world is and how little time I take. You know, we really do. I mean, we live in a sheltered world. And we all got different issues, from finances to issues in our marriage. But there's always somebody that's hurting worse than us. There's always somebody that's hurting worse than us. And I just want to encourage you to just be Christ. First and foremost to people in this body, but be Christ to this lost and dying world. It says in God's word that they'll know we are Christians by our what? By our love. At the end of the day, that's all we have to show. Chapter 13, uh, second half of verse 2. Without love, risk-taking faith is worthless. 
And it says this, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I just ask you to personalize this stuff. For me, I kind of pride myself in being a risk taker. You know, it's something really to be proud of, particularly the financial position I put my family in. But I really pride myself in being a risk taker, a maverick, a guy that's not afraid to step out and take a risk. And I find myself really taking pride in it and expressing that almost pridefully, that this is the way the Lord's wired me. I don't have love in my faith. The Lord's made me a risk taker because I've got a certain level of faith that things are going to work out. But quite frankly, oftentimes my faith is in my own abilities, which is a dead end, which is failure, than in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even faith can be a means of glorifying oneself and stroking the ego. Without love, risk-taking faith is worthless. Let's take a look at verse 3. Without love, giving all of one's money to the poor is unprofitable. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul next considers giving away all of his worldly possessions to feed the poor. His house, his money, his clothes, etc. Everything he values most. Surely this is the most ultimate This is the most ultimate charitable act. Selling everything and giving it away to the poor, isn't it? Wouldn't such giving by definition be love? Not necessarily. Paul makes it clear that the most extraordinary self-sacrificing action can be done in a loveless manner, without love. Self-sacrifice can be done for self-interest, as illustrated by Ananias and Sapphira. Remember the story? The couple sold their property and gave money to the apostles to distribute to the poor. However, they gave it without love. They withheld it. They did it to make themselves look better. They were not really concerned about the needs of the poor, but they were concerned about themselves. You know, we can do that. I mean, even in, even in, in giving here at the church, any, any type of giving can be done for self-exaltation rather than out of sacrifice and love. If we give all we own to the poor, apart from love, it would be fruitless, worthless, and quite frankly, have no eternal value. Even after such sacrifice, we would still be spiritually bankrupt in that respect. In contrast, when giving is moved by love to meet the needs of the poor, giving our possessions profits everyone. Such is the love that motivated Jesus to give up the riches of heaven and become poor for us. In Philippians 2... Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ gave it all up. And he was motivated out of what? He was motivated out of love. Let's look at the second half of verse 3. Without love, the ultimate sacrifice of one's life is pointless. And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul says that an ultimate act of supreme sacrifice, martyrdom, means nothing if it is done for the wrong reasons. That's kind of counterintuitive. Why would somebody ever lay their life down? Without love. Some people took great pride in suffering for their faith. And it is worth dying 
to be remembered as a hero of the faith. That's why some people were martyred, is to want to be a hero of the faith. In the early years of Christianity, becoming a martyr became at times a means of achieving great fame. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, summarizes God's perspective on love and self-sacrifice in this way. It says, God delights in little things when they spring from sincere love to himself. A cup of cold water given to a disciple in sincere love is worth more in God's sight than all one's goods given to feed the poor. Yea, than the wealth of a kingdom given away or a body offered up in flames without love. Only when martyrdom is a result of love for God and others is it the more excellent way. I know there's a couple of you here that are, are math people. And there's a divine mathematics. And if you were to take a pen out in your program and you were to write zeros all the way across and add them together, what would it equal? It equals zero. Exactly nothing. Even if you write it a thousand times, it still equal nothing. But if you put a positive number in front of them, they immediately have value. That's the way it is with our gifts. Quite frankly, our gifts, even though they are, they're divinely given by the Lord, they are worth nothing, nothing, without love placed in front of them. And just as the number two gives more value to a row of zeros than the number one does, so more and more love can add exponentially greater value to your gifts. Brothers and sisters, let's be a body that's characterized by love. The Lord has prepared my heart. I don't have any idea if there's anything I said here this morning has impacted your heart in any way. But the Lord has worked in my heart in a great way this week. Show me what a loveless person I am. It's not a woe is me because I got the Spirit of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The work that He's begun in me, the work that He's begun in each of you, He will bring it to completion. Amen? And a big part of that work is His love in our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you loved me so much, that you loved the world so much, that you gave your only begotten Son. Everything you do, Father, is motivated out of love. Everything that Jesus did, including leaving the comforts of the Godhead, was done out of love. Would you imprint us, Holy Spirit, with a reminder in everything we do, in every interaction we have with people, to lead with love? May we not be filled with knowledge for the sake of knowledge without having love in front of that knowledge. Would you please show us areas where we're unloving? Would you help us look for evidence of grace in each other's lives? Would you help me not be so critical? Just praise your holy name. I thank you that we have so much hope. And we can get so much joy from being reminded that we are your children. And that you promised never to leave us nor forsake us. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today that does not know you, has not bent their knee yet, that you'd be working in their heart. You tell us you want us to give it all 
to lay it all down. Show us areas that we're hanging on to that we have not yet to surrender. We love you. We praise you. We worship you.